Ken. We're so glad to have Ken with us today. And I would encourage you to be praying for uh, the search for our next worship pastor. Have you been blessed today just by being together and, and singing the Lord's praises together? Again, I would encourage you, if you've not already done so, to add Ken Van Cura to your prayer list and as uh, he is partnering with us and um, is uh, assisting us in our search. And uh, we just want to lift him up because we know that God is going to use him uh, as we partner with him and partner with Dwight Whitworth and company in uh, this very, very strategic search for our next worship pastor. I cannot understate or, or overstate enough the significance of this call. Um, I, I really believe that God has drawn our, our pastoral staff together for such a time as this. Um, but it is critical uh, for the future of our church that we, we bring in uh, the next man, and, and it must be God's man, to take us to where we need to go next in regards to our worship. The, the gathering of the saints to worship is one of the most significant things that will happen in, in this community this week. And so as we gather together, we want, to, we want uh, God's team and we want God's man and his family to be here to lead us. Uh, so pray for Ken, pray for that unknown person. We don't know who that individual will be. Um, within a matter of, of a month or so, perhaps we will know. Uh, but uh, we'll get there in due time, but the Lord knows. So I'm going to encourage you to pray and to lift uh, up this process. But also, let me give you this challenge. Um, we would love to see many of you uh, joining with our worship team. This is a great time. If you were thinking, you know, I'd like to be a part of our worship ministries, but I'm going to wait till the new guy comes, that is not a good start. Start this week. Uh, reach out to Pastor Danny about how you can be involved maybe in our choir. Uh, we have many uh, instruments uh, that are played behind us. We always need more folks to be a part of that. Uh, if you've been on the sidelines but you have this skill, God's blessed you with this, uh, I encourage you to reach out to our worship ministries and consider being a part of it. All right, well, this morning we're back in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in the third chapter today. And uh, as you'll recall, it's a letter that repetitively speaks about joy. It's emphasizing uh, the joy that we have in Christ uh, over and over again. It's why we're calling this series Joy No Matter What. Uh, that it doesn't matter what you face, what the challenges you may be confronted with, that we find joy in the Lord Jesus. And today we're considering the importance that righteousness has uh, the, the role it plays in our experiencing of joy, but not just any righteousness. I'm not talking about uh, the righteousness that we bring. I'm talking about true, authentic righteousness, the righteousness that can only be imputed into us, to, to us, ascribed to us by Christ. Now, we're going to be in 11 verses today. I'm going to tell you uh, there is a lot to unpack here, and there, honestly, we're not going to be able to unpack it all in this message. We're going to leave it for another time. Um, so I'm going to not hit on every verse. There's a lot to, to be addressed here. Uh, with that, we're going to dive right in, all right? So if you have your Bibles open, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, by the way, we're going to present the, 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 the verses on the screen behind me. If you do not own a copy of God's Word, I'm going to encourage you to come see me following the service. We will locate one for you so that you can have your very own, all right? So church, let's stand together. Let's open up the Word of God to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read beginning in verse 1 down to verse 11. Here's what Paul writes. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, this day, this day is a special day because, Lord, we woke up. We actually breathed air today, not because we willed it, but because you enabled us to do so. This day you have given to us. It is a gift. It is given by grace. And it is given that we might follow you, pursue you, worship you, praise you, and live righteously before you. Lord, let us not take for granted this day. And let us also not take for granted this opportunity that we have in this moment to be gathered as the people of God to unite our voices together in song, to gather around the Word, what a precious gift the Word is. But Lord, let us not trash this gift. Let us receive this gift. Let us understand it, and then let us live it out to the glory of God, we pray. This we ask and pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. And amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you. A key concept that we're addressing today is that of righteousness. So I think it's best that we first define what righteousness is. Greek scholar Joseph Thayer describes righteousness as this. It is the state of him who is such as he ought to be. I don't understand what that means either. <laughs> Here's a better way to put it. Let me put it in my terms. Being and acting in a way that is consistent with God's character. That's what righteousness is. God himself is consistent with his own character, but when we are called to righteousness, it means that we are being and acting in a way that is consistent with God's character. Here's why I like this definition, and that's because it measures what is right and what being right is according to who God is. And the reason why we do that is because he is the ultimate standard of righteousness and the judge of what righteousness is. 
And that's very important because there's all kinds of misunderstandings of what righteousness is. You may have your opinion, your definition. Someone else in the room may have a different idea. And it's important that what you and I think to be righteousness, it may not always match up, match up what the Lord thinks righteousness is. In fact, in the text, you're going to see as you read it broadly that Paul distinguishes between two types of righteousness. I'm going to define it as self-righteousness, the righteousness that we try to achieve on our own, it's based on our own efforts of being right, versus God's righteousness that comes through faith in Christ and is based upon His ability to be right and to do right, and it's also based upon His character. And so our righteousness, our self-righteousness, is something that we earn, but God's righteousness is something that is attributed to us by God. And so it's very important that we lean upon the right idea of righteousness because this is key to experiencing joy no matter what we may face. And yes, in the idea of joy, Paul starts right there in verse 1 addressing joy yet again. Look at verse 1 again. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, period. I often wonder why he didn't just stop there, right? He said, finally, after everything I've told you, rejoice in the Lord. Paul, out. But he doesn't do that, right? He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. In other words, Paul's saying there's more trouble you're dealing with that I need to address, more concerns, more confrontations, more potential joy robbers that I want to get straight for you. It's no problem for me to, to share it with you and it's safe for me to do so with you. And so based on verse 1, apparently Paul believes that every single last Christian should experience joy. But that joy is tied to righteous living. And so if you're not experiencing joy in your life, perhaps you need to ask the question, Lord, am I living righteously or, or, or not? Am I living in accordance to my efforts? Or am I leaning and relying upon your righteousness, Lord? In fact, Paul seems to be saying that if we want to experience joy no matter what, we need to do a couple of things. And the first is this. We need to reject self-righteousness. If you want to experience joy no matter what, reject self-righteousness. So what is that? Well, I'm going to define it like this. Self-righteousness is when you are confident in your own righteous acts, your own righteousness. And by the way, taking that, that to an extreme, if you're really confident, and how good you are as an individual, is how religious you are, how faithful you are in, in your uh, church attendance and participation. If it's taken to an ex extreme, you may become a little smug about your self-righteousness. You begin to look down upon others who don't live up to your standards. Now, apparently, Paul knew that the Philippians had to deal with their own share of people among them that embraced self-righteousness. That's because there were a group of legalists among them. They were known as the Judaizers. Now, we've talked about the Judaizers before. They were a, a group of Jewish people who had professed faith in Christ, who had been accepted by the church. They're a, a part of the congregation. But they insisted that in addition to faith in Christ, that you would also add Jewish religious traditions to it as well. In particular, this group uh, that was uh, afflicting the church in, in Philippi they held that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Now, that's heresy, by the way, so that we're clear about this. 
Salvation isn't faith in Jesus plus something else. It is through faith in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. Now, in describing these Judaizers, Paul is uh, showing how their righteousness comes up short. So I want to talk about the failures of self-righteousness as something that we lean upon and why we should reject it. And one is this reason, because self-righteousness is insufficient. And it's insufficient because it focuses upon externals. It's based upon works. Our works, not Jesus' works, our works on what we do, which is why Paul had such a problem with this group of Judaizers. In fact, notice how Paul describes them there in verse 2. His words aren't kind. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is talking about these Judaizers. And again, they were focusing upon the externals. They thought that external actions and behavior, external religious uh, rites and practices brought about inward change. Thinking along these kind of lines. You know, if I do these religious and what I believe to be righteous things, churchy things, righteous looking things, things that people can see, then I must be righteous. But brother and sister in Christ, can I tell you that's not how it works? It's not based upon what we do on the outside that begins to affect change inwardly. Inward change happens first. Jesus saves you based upon his work upon the cross, and as a result of that, he transforms you. You were once dead, now made alive. You were born again. He transforms you, and the inward change brings about, should bring about, external results. It's it's inside out, not outside in. And so that's why Paul was so harsh with his criticism in regards to the Judaizers. In fact, note what he calls them again. He calls them dogs. Jews considered non-Jews to be dogs, which in their view was despicable. Uh, and so calling someone a dog, man, that, that's not the kindest thing, right? You, you come up to me and, and you don't say anything other but than, what's up, dog? You call me, hey, you're a dog? You and I are going to have problems, right? And yet that's what Paul is saying. It's something that, that he even says it, but it's actually a pretty good description of what these Judaizers, these legalists, were doing. They were like a pack of wild canines roaming around, uh, viciously attacking the members of the church. Paul also calls them evildoers, or in some translations, evil workers. And he says this because anyone who thinks what you do externally is as important or more important than the inward change brought about by Jesus is an evildoer, according to Paul, in his understanding. That's because the the, the pride that they had in what they did and what they were doing was sinful. And he also said that they were mutilating the flesh. This is, by the way, a derogatory reference to circumcision. And Paul was being derogatory here because he thought that they were wrongly applying or misapplying the the circumcision. So remember, for the Judaizers, circumcision was just as important as putting your faith and trust in Jesus. But Paul is condemning that here by saying, well, that's just then, if that's your perspective, that's just mutilating the flesh. It's an external action, a symbolic one, but it's just external. Again, from the Judaizers' perspective, if you were male, circumcision was necessary, uh, just as necessary as salvation by faith. In other words, if you had the one, you trusted Jesus, but you didn't have the other and you were male, you didn't have circumcision, you weren't saved. But again, it was an external work, something that they did. Now you may think, well, we don't deal with that today. Well, maybe not that particular circumstance, 
But we still see people thinking this way. I mean, they'll er elevate certain things, maybe even good things that we might even affirm, uh, uh, things that the Bible calls us to do, but they take these, maybe these biblical things and, and elevate them and equate them to the work of Christ making them necessary for salvation. You'll see that with some denominations that say you must be baptized to be saved. And we won't weed in, wade into the weeds of, of baptism, but they're trying to take this work that we are commanded to do, but say that that is salvific, that is a sacrament, that is something that brings the effect of salvation to, to being. Or they'll point to, to, to communion, the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the Lord's Supper today. And there's some who will say that in order to be saved, one of the things that you must do is regularly participate in communion. And so they say the, these external things that they, in and of themselves may be biblical, but are not the effect of work of salvation, but they raise these things. Maybe we try to raise these things and believe that they are equal to Jesus in salvation. But Paul would say, no, those are external. If we attempt to be right in God's eyes based on the things that we do and in anything other than faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, you know what that makes us? It makes us Judaizers. Our righteousness, therefore, will fall short. It will come up insufficient, not enough. That's why Paul says here, look out, beware. And even though we lift up salvation by grace, friends, you know you may wrestle with this, even we are tempted to lean upon our own righteousness. This came to me to be very clear for me when I was a college student. It was uh, right after I had felt God was calling me into the ministry. I was getting very involved in the life of my church. And our church had an evangelism ministry that I wanted to participate in. And on the very first night of, of this evangelism ministry, the leader of the group says, you know, for all the new folks that are here with us, uh, every time you come in as a, as a first-time participant, we ask you uh, some questions as you join with us in this evangelism effort. And he says, so here's the question. And uh, he says, if you were standing before God right now and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And then he quickly pointed to me and said, Darren, what's your answer? And I, you know, sort of not unprepared. It, it happened so quickly. I stumbled a little bit. And the first words out of my mouth were, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, that's not the best answer, right? In fact, that is an incorrect answer. And I, I recognized that as soon as it came out, uh, uh, off of my tongue, past my lips, I, I couldn't draw it back. But I, I quickly pivoted and corrected myself and gave a faith response. Do you know that, that episode really shook me to my core because I realized that my knee-jerk response to that, that question was a self-righteous response. It was based upon what I do, my efforts, based on external works that I thought that I was doing, that I thought was sufficient. But you know, God's righteousness isn't like that. It doesn't work from the outside in. It works from the inside out. It starts with Jesus. And guess what? It ends with Jesus, and there's nothing in between. He has done all the work that is necessary for you and for me by living a perfect life and dying on our behalf his work upon the cross, following his perfectly lived life, his work is sufficient. And that's why Paul had confidence in Jesus, not in himself. Look at verse 3. After throwing some shade at the Judaizers, he reminds them and himself, he says, For we are the circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in what we do. Here in verse 3, Paul is comparing what he calls mutilation of the flesh with real circumcision. Now, I know we may not be quite familiar as the Jewish folks would, would have been about what circumcision was all about. Remember that God called Abraham and all of the males of Abraham's household and all of his, uh, his, uh, the generations to follow him to be circumcised as Abraham entered into a covenant with the Lord. And I know when you put a lot of thought to it, it's really a strange requirement. I, I can't figure it all out. It's an odd thing to me. But nevertheless, that what's more, most important is that it involved the, the cutting of the flesh. But, but Paul says, look, we, talking about Christians, he says we are the circumcision. And when he said that, he wasn't talking about physical circumcision. He was talking about spiritual circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. It wasn't a physical cutting of the flesh. It was a spiritual cutting of the heart. In fact, Paul would expound upon this in another letter that he wrote from, from his same prison cell in, in the book of Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 11. He said, In him, in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh and by the circumcision of Christ. And so something is done inwardly to us. God's righteousness doesn't come by what we do, something that we do. It's not some external action. It only comes through a genuine change of heart, something that only Jesus himself can affect, only he can do for us. It, it begins with an inward change of him redeeming us. And anything less than Christ's salvation and his righteousness, it falls short every time. It is self-righteous. And it is insufficient. So one, self-righteousness is insufficient. It's why we should reject it. But also, self-righteousness is an illusion. What I mean by that is that it appears to be real. It appears to be something, but it's, it's actually nothing. You know, with self-righteousness, we work very hard at being right. And then once we're done, we can sort of point to our good behavior as evidence that we are righteous. But what Paul is telling us here and is about to tell us here is that it's all a facade, it's smoke and mirrors, all designed to make us feel like we're righteous even though we're not. And if anyone could have ever gotten caught up in their own self-righteousness, it could have been Paul. If anyone could have boasted about his good life that he lived, his righteous life, it would have been him. If anyone could have had confidence in himself, it was Paul. In fact, at first what Paul writes in the next few verses, beginning in verse 4, may give the impression that Paul's pretty impressed with himself. Look at verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's saying, look, if anybody has confidence in what they do, I'm, I, I'm, I've, got a, I've got a leg up on you. Verse 5, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul is giving for us in this moment is his resume, his spiritual religious resume, his self-righteous resume, circumcised on the eighth day. Well, that, what does that mean? It means that he was a child of the covenant, circumcised on the eighth day of his life, just as the Old Testament law required for it to be done. He mentions that he was of the people of Israel, that is, he was born in the right group. He was a born as a part of God's people. He had been a Jew, was always to be a Jew always been a Jew, 
But not only that, he had some special favors because he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that this was the tribe that Israel's first king came from, was the tribe of Benjamin. It was the only tribe of Israel that remained faithful with Judah, and it was the Jewish tribe that would produce the Messiah, who was Jesus. And so he's not only a part of the right group of people as a Jew, he's a part of the inner group of the right group of people. He's also, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that he was a Jew through and through. His parents were Hebrews, he was raised a Hebrew, he spoke Hebrew, he, he was uh, raised to practice Jewish customs. And beyond that, as to the law, as to keeping the religious rules, he was a Pharisee. Now don't be turned off by that word Pharisee, we, we sort of are, are turned off by it because we have the broader context of Scripture, we know that Jesus opposed him. But remember that in Jesus', in, in Jesus day, in Paul's day, Pharisees were actually upsta- upstanding religious people in the Jewish culture. And they, they worked hard at keeping the law. The law was the heart of the Jewish faith, and the Pharisees were the most educated people around on the Jewish law. They had the most pious of lifestyles, were held in high regard by most, and Paul was one of them, which was a really big deal. In other words, Paul was a Jew of Jews, of the tribe of Benjamin, and an even smaller sliver of highly regarded people, a Pharisee. And he was a zealous one at that. As he says, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Believe it or not, that was considered a good thing by most people in that day because Paul loved the Word of God. He, before he became a believer, he saw that Christians were the enemies to God's Word, and so he killed Christians because he considered it a righteous thing to do, a zealous thing to do. And in regards to his righteousness, he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was considered blameless. That is, when people looked upon him, he was, he was a guy to emulate. He was a man they saw who lived right. He paid his tithes. He went to the temple to worship. He helped others that were less fortunate than himself. He kept the law better than most. In fact, when Paul was a younger man, if, if someone had asked for an example of righteousness in that day, uh, Paul would have been high on the list as someone you wanted your kid, your son, to grow up to be like and to emulate. He checked all the obvious boxes. And if Paul were around today, he might have said in our language, well, he's a pretty good churchman. He was always there when the doors were open. He was always faithful. He was the backbone of the church. Listen, Paul's testimony was impressive. People looked at him as if he were a super saint and that he achieved it all on his own, but it was all an illusion. Paul is presenting this not as something to emulate, but something that he thought used to be real, but it wasn't real. It wasn't lasting righteousness. It just looked real. You know, a few months back, remember when a few of our pastors were off in California and we had, with all the airline messes, we weren't able to get on our plane to get back and, and I wasn't able to be with you. We, we, our, our plane was delayed for one full day. And so what, what do you do when you're in California and you have nothing else to do? You go to Hollywood, that's what you did. So we rented a car and we drove up to Warner Brothers Studio. Anybody ever gone to one of those studios out there? It was actually fascinating to me, and we drove around a lot of movie sets and things. One of the, at one point, they asked us to put away our phones, and we actually went onto a soundstage, and uh, we weren't able, they were, there, it was a room that they were doing a lot of uh, active shooting for a TV show called All American. It's a show based on a football player uh, in high school, and so we walked in there and walked through off stage onto stage and we saw the sets there were classrooms and uh, some lockers and there was a, a locker room 
and, and, and I was thinking about what this looked like, would have looked like on television. Whenever you watch a TV show, you, you, you know, you, it looks all real, but if it's ever filmed on a soundstage, on a movie studio lot, it's not as real as it appears. Because you walk around a, a corner and you'll see that the, the walls are fake. It's just all a facade. We, it, it, inside, it appeared that we were standing in a high school, but just a few steps outside of that room, it was obvious that, that it wasn't real. It was all, the walls weren't, were fake. They were all facades. And, and facades, they look real. They give the impression that they're real, but it's all for show. It's not real after all. Well, I'm here to tell you, Paul is here as he's offering up his spiritual resume, and at first you might become impressed by it, but he's actually offering it up to say, I thought this was important, but it was a facade. It was an illusion. It seemed right. It seemed impressive, but there really wasn't much to it. See, we we can point to the righteous things that we've done, and we can say, see, look look at these things that I have done for the Lord. See what I've done, see how good I've been, see how righteous I am because of all of these works that I have done. And that's what Paul would have done and did before coming to Christ. He, he literally pointed to his religious resume and would have said, see, here's my righteousness. This is what I have done. It's been on full display before all of you. I've done all of these religious things. But you know, Paul wasn't lifting that resume up to say, hey, do this emulate me he was lifting it up to say it was worthless it was it was unreal it was an illusion now as much as Paul's religious resume seemed really impressive it was not impressive at all because he knew it wasn't real it wasn't it was inauthentic and if it's not real it's not authentic then it also means this third sub point and that is self-righteousness is ineffective look Paul puts it like this in verse 7 He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Paul was saying that previously he thought self-righteousness was so important, so impressive, that he used to think it gave him an advantage spiritually in, in life. But now Paul says he knows better. He's, he's confronted, been confronted by his sins before, by Christ. And he sees that all that he achieved and all that he thought was important was all just a loss. It didn't do him any good after all. It wasn't an advantage for him at all. In fact, it was a hindrance, a dangerous one at that because, you know, Paul had lived a pretty good life. It appeared to be a righteous life. And he could have said, hey, I'm better than most people. If I'm going to hell, then most people are going to hell too. But you've got to ask this question, what if Paul had not become a Christian? What if he had not experienced true inward spiritual change by the power of the gospel of Christ? What if all he had was his resume that we read about there in verses 4 through 6? As much as people in Paul's day would have patted him on the back and lifted him up, Paul would have been at a loss. And he would have suffered eternally because of it because the best that he had to offer was ineffective, insufficient. It was an illusion. It It didn't work. It was worthless. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 64 verse 6. We've all become like the one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like filthy rags. I just want you to consider this for just a moment. I want you to think about your life, and I want you to think about those moments. I want you to take the most righteous spiritual moments of your life, just the five minutes, the most, five most spiritual and religious and righteous minutes of your life, And I want you to hold that up and let that be the judge of your righteousness. 
And if Paul were looking at it, he would say, yeah, not enough. Insufficient. The only thing that we own that is enough is Jesus. And what he has done, not what we have done. In fact, notice what was now different for Paul. When he was living out this religious resume, the thing that is now different in his life and why he says that this, would say that this resume is not real, it's an illusion, is that he had a new goal and that goal was now Jesus. How do we know? Because twice in these two verses he says that he's doing this for the sake of Christ and because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. The only thing of spiritual worth is knowing Christ. And that's why we should reject our efforts of self-righteousness and instead do this thing rely on Christ's righteousness. So how do we do that? Well, we, I'm going to put it in terms of lost and found, okay? We want to lose and we want to find. First, the lose. We want to lose those self-righteousness, which only makes sense based on what we've talked about so far. Look at halfway through verse 8 where he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, may gain Christ." Here Paul is saying that he suffered the loss of all things. Those all things that he's talking about, his spiritual resume, his self-righteousness, the, the religious things that he did and counted on uh, to, to make himself righteous. And Paul says, all those things that I used to lift up that I now know are a, an illusion, the reason why they're not real, they're insufficient, ineffective, why he considered it all, it was because he considered it rubbish. This word only appears here, by the way, in the New Testament, and it means garbage. Or in a more crass way, it means dung. Paul was saying, you know, all those good things I, I, I used to be so proud of? Cow poop, that's what it was. That's what he's saying. He's saying it, it, it's so worthless. It, it's trash. He realized that his best was nothing compared to Christ. Worth only the trash heap or the toilet. Apparently he understood Isaiah 64.6 uh, that all of our righteous deeds, it is pollution. It is like a polluted garment. You know those things that, that we may be point, tempted to point to as well? Going to church, being a good person, those things that others uh, pat us on the back for, those things in and of themselves are not bad. Of course we want you to do those things. They can be really good. But if you're relying on those things instead of trusting Christ, rubbish it, it, it fits far better uh, at the dump than it ever would to represent your righteousness christian super saint you're not as righteous as you think you are you can also say i'm not as righteous as i think i am none of us are especially if that righteousness is our righteousness and not christ righteousness experiencing christ righteousness if you'll do that, you will see an inward change that begins to affect your behavior, of course. You'll see the fruit of that, what you say, what you do, how you think. Again, these things don't bring about change, but when inward change comes, when Jesus saves you and transforms you and begins to work in you, you begin to see the evidence of that change, and it may be seen outwardly, but Jesus does not call us to do those things. He calls us to come to Him. And that we might be more like Him, to, to embrace His righteousness. Again, remember, religious and righteous deeds do not save us, and they do not change us either. Only having a right relationship with Christ does. That's why we lose the self-righteousness. And instead, we find the righteousness of Christ. 
Paul says, you know, I, I, I lose all these righteous efforts, all these things in order to gain Christ. And then verse 9, nine and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen, we, we could spend a whole other message or two just on those verses. We're not going to do so. But verse 10 may, may be the key passage, uh, key verse of this passage. Because Paul is saying, you know, I used to have a righteousness of my own. You know that. It was based upon how I kept the law. It was the same law that these Judaizers are trying to impress upon you, trying to force you to do. But I'm here to tell you, I used to be there, and that righteousness came up short. It's rubbish, dung. And I traded all of that righteousness for, that, of my own, and I exchanged it, praise God, for the righteousness of Christ. And it's a righteousness I found by having faith in Him. And listen, I mean, if anyone had justification uh, other than Christ to say, hey, he had a righteous life, I would have said it would have been Paul. And yet Paul is saying, nope, I traded all that in for another, for the, for the righteousness of another. He traded it in for Christ's righteousness. And where Paul's righteousness was insufficient and illusory and if ineffective, Christ's righteousness is sufficient, it is real, and it is effective. And Paul recognized that any righteousness that was now seen in him wasn't generated in, by himself and in himself. And any spiritual good that came from God, that they had, came from God who worked it in through him. Remember from chapter 2, verse 13, here in Philippians? Where Paul says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, the only righteousness that works, the only righteousness that, that is real, is the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness that he works in us and imputes to us. And, this, and the power of Christ, as we read in these verses, based on the work of Christ, of Christ on the cross and through the resurrection, it is available for you. It's resurrection power, as verse 10 mentions, and it's available for you to live righteously for Him. But it is a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, not in yourself, a righteousness that depends upon faith in the Lord. So let me ask you, as we wrap all of this up, do you have joy no matter what? How is your righteousness, self-righteous or otherwise, how is it helping you to experience the joy of Christ. Lose your righteousness. Just do it. Paul's not saying don't be a good person. He's saying just don't trust your ability. Lean into Christ. Lose your righteousness and find Christ's righteousness by having faith in Him. It's as the Apostle Peter once said in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous... That's Jesus. For the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. His righteousness for yours. Your self-righteousness, your unrighteousness. How righteous is Jesus? He's everything. Jesus lived approximately 33 and a half years, according to some. If you were to break that down in the number of seconds, that means that Jesus lived approximately... 1,057,157,021 seconds. 
They say that the, the, that the average human being, the average brain, in every second has 100 billion neurons firing around 200 times per second. What that means is, is that there are around 20 million billion firings going on in your brain every second. I want you to think in terms of Jesus who was on this earth and lived through this life as we've lived it, but he lived differently. How many conscious decisions did Jesus make while he was here on earth to obey his Father's will? Perhaps 20 million billion by the number of seconds he lived, perhaps. And after all of those multitudes of decisions that he could have made, Jesus never made one decision that wasn't consistent with God's character. He never made one decision that wasn't consistent with his own character because he is that God. That's how righteous he is. So let me ask you again. You want to rely on your righteousness? You want to rely on his. Jesus lived a perfect life and he died the perfect death so that you wouldn't have to try your best and you wouldn't have to... to be righteous according to your own terms, but that you would have his righteousness imputed into you, ascribed to you. I take Jesus' righteousness every single moment of my life. How about you? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the righteous one. You are the righteous and we are the unrighteous. And you came and you died so that the unrighteous might be brought to, to the Lord, but also that your righteousness would be attributed to us. So that when others are looking at us and making judgment upon us, they wouldn't see our righteousness, but they would see yours. And praise the Lord for that. Lord, we know that Relying upon your righteousness begins by putting faith and trust in you. It's a recognition that we are separated from you because of our sin, that there is nothing that we can do to overcome our sinfulness, that our self-righteousness, our righteous attempts never measure up. They're insufficient. They're ineffective. It's all an illusion, Lord. It will never, ever work. And so, Lord, we need to reject that and in its place, turn to you as we repent from our self-reliance and our self-righteousness. And we humbly turn to you, knowing that you have done what was necessary. You've lived the perfect life, and you've paid the penalty for our sin. You've died in our place. And Lord, in response to that, we trust you. We have faith in you. We surrender to you. And we know we don't do that in our own power, and our own strength. It comes because you transform us. But Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here today that does not know you, that today be the day that they reject their attempts at being right with you and they rely upon you and come to you in faith and only by faith. Save them, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.